0: we've been looking at these little verses. Uh, There's about, I think, 250 of them uh, that start with the phrase, but God. And we're not looking at all of them. Um, There's about 40 or 50 of them that really that little phrase, but God, or but the Lord, or but you, or but he, acts as a a real turning point in uh, the story or in the passage. And we've looked at some of them so far. But God remembered Noah. The Lord, your, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Deuteronomy 23, 5. Nehemiah 9. But you are a God of pardons, a God of forgivenesses, And we come uh, this evening to Psalm 18, verse 18. But the Lord was my support. And verse eighteen it's a very straightforward verse. Um, they confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support it's It's kind of a summary verse. It sums up what has gone before in the seventeen verses that are set out much more graphically for David as a poet, as a wordsmith, as a great artist with words takes. And he describes what he means when he says, I was in a disastrous day. And then, with greater vividness, he paints for us what it was like for God, the Lord, to be his support. But as I was looking through the great sheaf of pages of all the but God, but the Lord, but you, but he uh, phrases in Scripture, Psalm 18 has two And there's one at the end of the psalm in verse 41. Um, And it's quite a contrast. But the Lord was my support. In verse 41, they cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer quite a contrast. And that contrast serves to highlight for us the wonder of verse 18, because it's not everybody that God hears and comes to their support. And I want us to to really take two main headings this evening to look at the two portraits, well, two pictures that David paints. A picture of disaster, and then a picture of God coming to the aid of his people. And so, first of all, I want to to think of drowning in disaster, trying to keep the the headings as vivid as the imagery. Um, We could have had the need for support. No. Drowning in disaster, that's what seems to be happening here. I read a number of years ago this book, Polishing God's Monuments, by a man called Jim Andrews. He's a pastor in the States, and it's a It's a true story. It's a story of uh, his daughter and letters that he wrote to his congregation through a a period of about 20 years of an illness and a series of illnesses his daughter suffered. But if ever there was a man who was drowning in disaster, it's this man or his daughter. Let me just give you a a very quick synopsis. Um, At the age of about 10, he looked out of a a window one day and saw a horse coming galloping across um, through a, a wood and across a paddock and there was his daughter hanging uh, with her foot caught in the stirrup bouncing along on this rough ground and then just as he was, he was running out to rescue her the horse's hoof landed in her head thankfully only glanced off it disturbed uh, her body and of her you know, sent shudders up that her foot came through of the stirrup, uh, free of the stirrup, and landed in the heap in the ground, thought she was dead, ran and gathered her up, and they took her to hospital and She said that she was so black and blue and swollen that you wouldn 't have recognized her at all. Then she made a reasonable recovery and then um, I think she was on a trip to Kenya and she was bitten by some insect or other uh, and uh, suffered you know, from that. And then uh, she was taking part in the communion service in her church and they were, they were using a common cup uh, and somebody on the pew next to her had a, an illness, mononucleosis. It's a very debilitating illness. And it was passed on to her and she was hit by it. And because of just her, you know, the injuries to her brain, because of this, perhaps this bite that she had received in Kenya, it set in place a whole bizarre series of events that culminated in her being diagnosed with, uh, first of all, chronic fatigue syndrome, and then eventually uh, multiple chemical sensitivities. And then her husband, she got married in the midst of all this, her husband was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And, um, but she had these multiple chemical insensitivities that just got worse and worse and worse. So he would come in from being outside and he would have picked up a scent of some perfume or other off somebody and he would walk into the room and she would scream, get out, get out. Or she started to react to, to, just, to, to fabric, to clothing that, was, that wasn't natural. So their clothing all had to be made of natural fibres. And then she started to react against the threads that were holding the clothing together. And then she started to react to the water in the taps. And they filtered it, but that wasn't good enough. And then they started importing water, but the plastic in the bottles was setting off her immune system. And they they had to go for hundreds of miles to get water uh, for her. Uh, And then just as she starts to make a recovery, she's diagnosed with cancer. Now, for someone who has multiple chemical sensitivities, how do you do chemotherapy? You know, whenever her husband came into the room smelling a little bit of some sort of perfume that he had picked up walking down the street somewhere, it was described as being, the the reaction in her body was like acid being poured through her veins. What on earth would chemotherapy be like when a normal person says that's what it's like? And you just you read this book, and you 're thinking, "How much more can one person uh, take?" Uh, and then uh, at some stages she was better than others, and one time she was outside, and she shouted for her husband, and she says i, I can 't move my eyes. My eyelids they 're halfway up, and i can 't close them or open them." And then she started to, to just collapse, and she says i can 't breathe." And she just mysteriously stopped breathing and they rushed her to the hospital and they said she was within a minute of being dead. And then some other bizarre illness came on because of the brain injury, because of everything else, where her body, she was a tiny, tiny girl. And her body just started to to morph, even though she wasn't eating much, it started to grow bigger and bigger just in the top half of her body. Her dad said her head was like a basketball and then she had diabetes. So if you just think, surely not. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And they said that her diabetes count was 650, her blood sugar was 650. Now I panicked at that because I was visiting a man whose blood sugar count was high at 21. And then thankfully I googled and found that Americans have a different system. But this was still 36 You know, they're worried enough in hospital when Stuart's was 22, 23, 24. This was 36 on our scale. And then she had a relapse of the chronic fatigue. You're you're reading this book and you just want to weep. This girl, this family are drowning in disaster. They're drowning in it. It's one thing after another. And we get a a sense of that too in the life of David. It's not just it's not so it's not just a biblical phenomenon that sometimes some of the people in the Bible had it really hard, you know. But they're they're often a different scale from us. Sometimes this happens to God's people today, and sometimes for us it mightn't be as extreme as this. But we can be drowning in disaster. David, David is being pursued by Saul. Um, we read about the incident at Keilah where he rescues the city, and then they're going to betray him. What a kick in the teeth. Then the Ziphites betray him. And then uh, we read uh, later on where David says, there is but a step between me and death. Or sorry, that's earlier, 1 Samuel 20. Later on, we read of him going amongst the Philistines, and he has to pretend that he's a lunatic. Otherwise, they'll kill him. And then He's convinced them he's okay, and they're about to go into battle with him on their side. And then they decide, no, we'll not. And they send him back. And as he goes back to Ziklag, he finds that his camp has been attacked by another enemy. And his families and the families of his men have been taken away. And his men want to put him to death. And then Saul is killed. Oh, you would think it would be over. But no, The Philistines decide this is the time to attack. And when they heard that that he was king in the land, they set out, 2 Samuel 5, they set out to attack. Then in 2 Samuel 7, we read that David had rest from all his enemies. And then he writes this psalm. One thing after another. Look even at the language of the psalm. Those opening verses, verses 3 to 5, he speaks of enemies. He speaks uh, of the cords of death entangled me. It's vivid. He speaks of the torrents of destruction. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death, the traps that are set to catch him, cunning and wicked and devious and cruel and barbaric. That's what snares wear, are set to catch him. He speaks of, verse 6, in my distress. One writer says, and I'm going to quote this writer a lot tonight, because he's, he's wonderful. An old writer called Alexander McLaren. He says, Sheol, is the Hebrew word for the grave, Sheol and death have marked him as their prey and are drawing their nets around him. David's not finished painting the scene. In verse 16, he speaks of the deep waters. Deep waters. It's as if he's caught in a a waterfall where the the water's just pounding down on him. Uh, Psalm 42 speaks of all your deeps, crash over me. Or waves when you're out at sea and you're maybe surfing and somebody see some of these surfers come off their board and the wave pounds down on them and the next one comes in and comes in and comes in and they're killed under. David says, this is what it was like. He was in deep waters. He speaks of his powerful enemy. Then he says, my foes, plural. They confronted me. They were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster. You see this sense of a man drowning, plunged, not just neck deep, but right over his ears in disaster. Maybe you felt like that at times. For a moment or for more than a moment. Maybe it's been a section of your life has felt like that or may come to us. Suffering comes to us. Don Carson says, if you live long enough, you will suffer. And we hear David in Psalm 57 written at this time as well, where he says, oh, show grace, O Lord, show grace until disaster has passed through. Shelter me in the shadow of your wings until disaster has passed through. And in times like that, we, we wonder, where is God? And we're drowning not just in a sea of disaster, but sometimes in a sea of doubt. But here's what this verse says to us for the Christian. For the Christian, they confronted me in the day of my disaster. The day of my disaster is not the end of the verse. And we're, when we're in days or times like that, We need to look to a verse like this that reminds us that there's more to come. But the Lord. There's our little phrase that we've been focusing on. But the Lord, David says. There's more to the sentence. That's what we've got here. And that's what we want to see next. Held by the hand from heaven. Held by the hand from heaven. Why isn't David swept away? Why doesn't the snare close on him and seize him tight? Why don't the coils tighten around him and choke the life out of him? But the Lord was my support. But the Lord was my place to lean on. But the Lord was the one that I leant on in this time. That's what it means. But the Lord was the one who came and held me up. And it's such a simple phrase. But I love how David has unpacked for us. That's the summary of these previous verses, where David has painted for us this wonderfully vivid picture of God coming to his aid. Because we sing, but the Lord was my support. Or we sing, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slide. Do we understand? Do we think? Do we? Gr- my help comes from the Maker of heaven and earth. Really? That's incredible. And it's said so lightly and easily in the psalm. Psalm 121, that we can be used to singing it or reading it, that we don't pause and marvel. And David says here, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Back up and look at the Lord being your support. And he gives us, and this is why I changed what I said earlier. I said he gives us two portraits. I was getting ahead of myself. He gives us two pictures. He gives us a picture of the disaster, and then he gives us a picture of God coming. But in that picture of God coming, we've got, as it were, two portraits. We've got a portrait, first of all, of the character of the God who supports. What's, what's he like? What's this support like? And David says, oh, let me start. He says, it's as if once I get started, I might know where to stop. And he starts in, and he says, he's a rock. He's a refuge, and there's a little word that's not translated uh, in 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 the NIV here. Little, it's a one letter in Hebrew, uh, and it's 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 the word and, and it occurs several times in uh, these opening verses. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. There's this and and and, where there, it's as if. He's saying, he's he's all that plus. Oh, I've thought of another word. And he's this. And he's this. And here's the character of the supporting God. Is he like Isaiah describes Egypt, like a a reed of a staff that splinters in your hand when you lean on it? Oh, no, he's a rock. The word rock's used twice. One of the times it's a a different word from the other and the one of the times it means like a, a huge cliff. Where you you're, you're is it where you're up on the top of this cliff and you're just above everything you're above your enemies you're above the crashing seas it's all going on the storms going on but he's your rock and you're up there and you're above it all this is the god to whom we come he's a shield he's a he's he's an object of defense He's a horn of salvation. The imagery there is of an animal with its horns going on the attack. He's not just a defender. He's someone who'll come to your aid by attacking the enemy. Here's this God. And David just piles up phrase after phrase after phrase. And what David is saying, here's what I've seen of God. I've seen it. And boy, must he have seen it. Hounded by Saul. Hunted round the valleys, the cliff tops, the, the caves. Hunted, too, by the Philistines, because they wanted to get their hands on him. Saul is slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. And here, David says, oh, I know. Digging himself into holes, going amongst the Philistines, then having to pretend that he's mad. Oh, dear. He says, ah, but... He's my safety. I've seen it. And when he says that the Lord was my support, he's not diminishing the waves or the cords of death, but he's saying, my God supported me. My God was a refuge, a shield. He was like, he, he, he was a, I was like up on a cliff when the waves were smashing in. I was standing on a rock when others were wallowing, uh, when I could be wallowing in quicksand. He was my shield that I could hide behind whenever the arrows were coming in. He was like an animal, a wild animal that came to my aid and charged past me with his horns to attack those who were attacking me. He was a castle that I took shelter in. Again, Alexander McLaren says this, he says, Jehovah is all the armor and all the refuge of his servant. To trust him is to have his protection cast around and his power infused for our conflict and victory. That's our God. To trust him is to have his protection cast around and his power infused into us. For the conflict that we're in and for victory. And that's not all. Then he paints the portrait of God in action. It's as if we've seen you know a picture. You know, sometimes you see photographs of your football team and there they all sort of they're, they're standing there like you know, like this. And that's the picture of, of them, you know, just, just like a portrait of them. And then you see a picture of the footballer in action. Well that's what we've got here, got here. We've got a portrait of God. There he is. He's a rock. He's a shield. He's a refuge. And now we see him moving. And the language is vivid. And you imagine how terrifying it would be for the enemies of God to realize this is who they're arrayed against. God has stirred himself. He has seized his weapons, and he's coming to the aid of his people. How exciting! Again, McLaren says, the prayer of faith I love this next phrase. The prayer of faith brings the dread magnificence of Jehovah into the field, into the battlefield. The dread magnificence of Jehovah, the Lord, is coming to the battlefield. And uh, he continues, he says, Then comes the purpose of all the dread magnificence, strangely small, Except to the psalmist, heaven and earth have been shaken and lightning set leaping through the sky for nothing greater than to drag one half-drowned man from the floods. This poor man cried, and the cry set Jehovah's activity in motion. The deliverance of a single soul may seem a small thing, but if the single soul has prayed, it is no longer small. For God's good name is involved. A nation is disgraced if its meanest subject is left to die in the hands of foreign enemies, and blood and treasure are not wasted if poured out lavishly for his rescue. God cannot let a suppliant who has taken shelter in his tent be dragged from it. That lovely. Therefore there is no disproportion between the description and the deliverance, which is its sole result. Our mighty God has staked His eternal reputation on answering the cries of His blood-bought people, people that God the Son has purchased at Calvary. God says, I won't lose any of them. And He stirs Himself to come to the aid of His people. David is wanting us to grasp the vivid, dramatic reality of God's support. A hand from heaven that comes to the aid of God's people. You might say, ah, but Mark, I've never seen that. That's not every day that happens, that the heavens are torn open and the lightning's being hurled to rout armies, the sea's being blown apart to rescue God's people. Yes, we read of it in the Exodus, and I think what David is doing is using the language of the Exodus to say it's the same God. Because we read of one of the the rescues, the great deliverances of God's people didn't we, of David in the day of his disaster in this very period to which he's referring. Wasn't it awfully ordinary? There he was being pursued by Saul round the mountain and and Saul's troops were closing in. And news came. The Philistines are attacking over here. And Saul stopped. Another time at Ziklag, here's what the, the intervention of the God of heaven looked like. They found a half-dead Egyptian slave lying in a field. And they, they asked him, they revived him, they asked him what had happened and, and where the armies had gone. And he said, oh, they've gone that way. That was what the intervention of God looked like. Another time, the Philistines are attacking. They've, David has just become king. The Philistines think this is the time to attack And they're attacking, and there's a rustling in the branches of the trees that sounds to their ears like the steady march of the troops. And they think the army's far larger, and they run. We don't read of an incident in this time of David that he's referring to that matches the description that we've got here. We read of countless, wondrous deliverances that are very ordinary, rustling leaves. A message that comes and says, the Philistines are attacking. A survivor who's got enough life left in him to tell them. And I think what David is saying here, do you see what was ordinary to the eyes? I see God stirring himself from the throne of heaven. I see my God is coming to the aid of his people. And it's as if he wants us to see the wonder of it behind what looks ordinary. Because in your life and mine, and I think in David's life, he's seeing here with the eyes of faith. He's seeing the drama behind the ordinariness of the leaves rustling and the Philistines being terrified and thinking the army's larger. He's saying, ha <laughs> ha. How was the Lord of heaven did that. Who was it took the stone that David slung and made sure it implanted itself on Goliath's head? Oh, it was ordinary, one level. But it's the Lord of heaven working himself. And his support is nonetheless dramatic because it's ordinary to our eyes. That's one of the key things to see here. We might say, ah, but he never does this for me. Ah, but I don't see this majestic glory. David says, ah, no. You see it with the eyes of faith. Because in those ordinary deliverances, those ordinary provisions, but the Lord is your support. You're drowning in a sea of disaster. and, And something that seems ordinary comes along. And it's like a life built to you. And it makes space round you. Like David would say, Ah, he set me in a spacious place. But the Lord was my support. But the Lord was my support. You and I are being held by the hand of heaven. And it is is nonetheless dramatic. It's not less dramatic for its being ordinary to our eyes. But the Lord was my support. Think of how he intervenes and messes with the the natural causes uh, and consequences in life, and how he intervenes in a timetable of events to divert someone so that this happens, so that that happens, so that a course of events has changed so that help is provided, so that somebody meets somebody else, so that somebody doesn't meet with a car accident, so, th- so that strength is given whenever we're at our lowest ebb. Think of how he intervenes. There he is, stirring himself from his holy temple to come to the aid of his people. And it is as majestic as David describes it. If we could see it with these eyes of faith. Let me finish with three applications. Three applications that we see here. Be one of the people that God gives support to. In verse 41, it's clear that there are some people he doesn't answer. He's silent to them. And verse 20 to 27 shows us the character of the people that God supports. That's words that we might shy away from. But the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. Verse 23, I have been blameless before him. I have kept myself from sin. Now, we're inclined to read that with the eyes of Paul in the New Testament, who says there's no one righteous, not even one. We know that there's nobody pure, for we have sinned in our thoughts and in what we've left undone and what we should have done that we didn't do and what we did do that we shouldn't do. And we read it with the eyes of Paul, but David's not saying is perfect. When we read this sort of claim in the Psalms, he's saying, I'm a follower of you, God. I'm a follower of you. And as far as I'm aware, I've sought to follow you. There's, there's no willful sin. No open and obvious accusation can be made against me. This is at a stage in his life before the sin with Bathsheba. I'm seeking to obey you, God. Not like Saul, who's one of the people who isn't heard. This is a claim to Loyalty. And obedience, not perfection. And if we're looking, if we are Christians looking to call to God for help, we need to look at our lives and make sure that we are not willfully sinful that there are not areas in our lives that we are not willing to put right. Because God may be bringing the trouble into into our lives to bring us to a realization of our sin. It may be that he's bringing difficulty in to highlight our need of repentance. And so we need to look at that. But David says, no, that wasn't true of me in this case. I'm an innocent sufferer. I'm an innocent sufferer. God will help us work at godliness, but we have no right to call for help if we aren't working at following our God. And so if we're looking to call out to God in times of trouble, as Christ's people, we need to be making sure that we are with Christ's help seeking to follow Christ in His ways. This is what David says. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. We can have no confidence that God will hear and answer our prayer if we're willfully disobeying God or defying God. So that's a challenge. If we want to say the Lord is my support. Secondly, 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 we want to say actively make him your refuge. Actively make him your refuge. Uh, David uh, says uh, later on in the Psalm, he says, in you I take refuge. In verse 30, he says, he is a shield for all who take refuge in him. It can be easy to give up. It can be easy to rely on ourselves. You can't say, God is my refuge if we aren't fleeing to the refuge. We can't say, God is my shield if we're not sheltering behind that shield and hanging on to the promises, holding on in faith to the character of God, the person of God, to the the place we have because of Jesus. We need to be exercising the muscles of faith. And that's what David has been doing. He's been hanging on. By faith. And as he has hung on by faith, he has found that God is a refuge and a shield. We're to make sure that we're looking at him and we're looking to him and we're trusting in him. And then thirdly, we're to relish his support. Verse 1. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. It's the only time in the New Testament or the Old Testament that this word in this form is found. It's intensely personal. It's a deep love. It's related to, to the word for a womb. And it conjures up that idea of a, a mother's love for a child. But it's used here of David's love for God. Intensely personal. our sense of God's support should lead us to love Him more. Again, one more quote from Alexander McLaren. He says, the purpose of all life's experience is to reveal Him—that's God—in these characteristics. And they have rightly learned its lessons, whose song of looking back begins with, I love you, Lord." and pours out at his feet all the happy names expressive of God's sufficiency and of the singer's trust. We've learned the lesson if, as we look back, we say, wow, I love you, Lord. You've been a rock and a refuge and a high tower and a shield. And how much richer it is on this side of the cross. For we can marvel at those phrases in a way that David, when he wrote them, couldn't marvel. Lord is a shield. How was he a shield to us when we were swamped? What does a shield do? It takes the blows. The arrows fall on the shield. The sword blows, strike it. It gets hacked to bits. He was our shield. God the Son put His body between us and the judgment of God and He was broken and He was crushed and He was pierced to be our shield. He was the one on whom the the waves smashed and smashed and smashed and smashed the waves of judgment. He was the one who was plunged under the torrent of our sin and then the double torrent of judgment coming hurtling down on him. He was the one who took all of that so that we could be a refuge, so that we could have him as our refuge, so that we could be safe. And as we sing these words, they paint a portrait for us of our Savior and what he's done. And yes, he came from heaven, but before he comes in such dread majesty To bring judgment, he came. It says here, later in the psalm, about the God who stoops down. Oh, did he stoop down in an unexpected way to be judged, so that we could find refuge, so that in a way that David couldn't even have grasped, perhaps, that we could say, I am righteous, I am blameless, I am pure. Why? Because God the Son's perfect righteousness has been credited to my account. His blamelessness has been put on my record. Oh, he is my refuge. He is my stronghold. He is my salvation. But the Lord was my support. So simple a phrase. And yet, when we see the disaster that surrounded us, and we see the rescue, we say, I love you, Lord. You heard my voice and cry.